Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, and we are on episode number 34. My name is Dominic, and my co-host's name is Janice, and today we have the pleasure of speaking with Mr. Christopher Plaisance about his new book, Evocating the Gods. Christopher is a independent humanities scholar researching topics within the fields of the history of philosophy, religion, and Western esotericism from the methodological perspectives of classical philology and discursive archaeology. He holds a master's in Western esotericism from the University of Exeter's Center for the Study of Esotericism and a bachelor's in philosophy from the American Military University. He works professionally as a cyber threat hunter and lives in southeastern Pennsylvania with his family. You can find a lot of Christopher's works on uh, academia.edu, as well as on his website, philologia.io, P-H-I-L-O-L-O-G-I-A dot I-O. We had a really fascinating discussion with Mr. Plaisance today on this show. I think it's a great compliment to his book, if you have it. Chris is able to go in depth on some of the important points that he makes in the book and some of the important uh, topics and subjects that he covers. So I think it's a valuable discussion, whether you have the book or not, but definitely we would recommend uh, checking that out through Avalonia Press. Before we get going, as usual, we have to say thank you to our Patreon supporters. It still blows us away that there are people out there helping support what we do. It really motivates us to keep going. So again, thank you, as always, sincerely. If you would like to support what we're doing, help keep the show going, that would be amazing. You can just go on to Patreon and donate what you can, one time or uh, reoccurring monthly. We dedicate this work to Hermes and Asclepius, and may the merits we accumulate doing this work be extended to all sentient beings so that they, together with us, may equally realize awakening. Welcome to the show. We are here with Chris Plaisance, and we are here to talk about his new book, Evocating the Gods, uh, Divine Evocation in the Greco-Egyptian Magical Papyri. And we're really excited about this. Thanks for coming on the show, Chris. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Really glad to have you. This is going to be a valuable a valuable addition to our series on, on theurgy. I'm really excited about this. Yeah, it'll be good to talk about the book and some of the concepts that we, we deal with in it. Right. Um, 
So first, right off the bat, I, I want to deal with some terminology issues. I mean, I, I can't believe you've published this book and you misspelled a word right here on the cover. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's kind of strange. But So what's with the word evocating? It seems to be kind of controversial. Yeah. So, you know, as a, the book itself is a, a philological study and most of what I do is involved with philological approaches, um, looking at word history and the history of the use of language within different contexts of the Western esoteric traditions. Um, and since this was, you know, a study in the vein of classical philology, um, a lot of the work that I did dealt with historical sources of the language itself. And when I started looking at the word theagogia, the Greek term for divine evocation that the book is you know, mostly de- uh, concerning, all of the lexica that I found from the kind of the middle of this past millennium, 1600s, 1700s, 1500s, they all defined theagogia uh, with the Latin deorum evocatio. Um, so the title of the book was initially going to be Deorum Evocatio, um, but I was actually cautioned against that by uh, my editors who said I should make an English title for it because that would be uh, a better better title for non-technical people. Um, but the, the title that I ended up coming up with, Evocating the Gods, is kind of a callback to these um, early modern Latin translations of the Greek. Um, and the word evocate itself was more commonly used earlier on um, as a translation for specifically for the the present um, infinitive form of the Latin evoco, um, which is evocare. Um, so that is kind of the way that the title ends up calling back to these past um, technical discussions and, and definitions of the word. Great. Yeah. I mean, I love the word. I don't know uh, why it caused such a stir, but so before we get any further, maybe let's backtrack and talk a little bit about yourself. And how did you get um, involved specifically in this in this work? How did this come about? Yeah, so I uh, started studying um, philosophy, uh, you know, right as out of the bat as my undergrad. Um, I, it was my focus, and when I studied philosophy, I was mostly interested in the ancient Greek um, and late antique phases. So Plato, Aristotle. The Middle Platonists and Neoplatonists that followed afterwards. Um, and after finishing that, I, I went on to do uh, a master's work at the University of Exeter's Center for the Study of Esotericism, where I ended up completing my, my master's there uh, in the history of Western esotericism. Um, and during the course of that, I decided to focus um, as much as I could on the late antique experience, um, specifically on uh, Iamblichus, the Neoplatonist, and the Greco-Egyptian magical papyri. So I had done some previous work on uh, Iamblichus's book, uh, De Mysteris, during the course of working on the masters. So when I sat down to do the, the thesis, the dissertation, um, I knew that I wanted to reach back into that same set of currents. Um, so I was sifting through De Mysteris, looking for maybe some unanswered questions that I had never read about in other secondary sources, seen papers or books specifically on that. And the thing that caught my eye was, you know, Iamblichus is having this discussion about this weird looking word, theagogia, and why it's so bad. Um, and that really caught my interest because 
you know, in reading all the secondary literature on Iamblichus, on, you know, the Greek magical papyri, this was not something that had previously jumped out to me as a big point of discussion. Um, and the more that I started looking into this, the more it, it, it you know, came to me that this was kind of a gap in contemporary scholarship on the on these works. And there hadn't been a lot of really in-depth and detailed discussion around the term or the context um, within which it rested uh, within these, these various pieces of literature. There's really hardly anything more than a handful of quotes and glosses in, in various dictionaries and lexicons um, surrounding this. So the whole project for the master's thesis kind of grew out of an examination of this word, theagogia, um, and developing an understanding of the philosophical, religious, and magical contexts of the word within the, the broad scope of all the literature um, in which it appeared. Um, so that was kind of the, the thrust of my master's work there. Um, and the book kind of grew out of uh, the completed master's thesis. I know we're going to have to expand on this. Theogogia, can you can you define it for us here, just so we have some context moving forward? Right. Yeah, so at, at the root, it's two suffixes, so theos and agoge. Uh, theos means God. Agoge is usually used to mean to draw down or to pull towards. So when pushed together, um, there are a lot of technical terms that you find within the Greek magical magical papyri that are constructed in this way, where you have you know one noun and then the agoge suffix used to indicate the evocation of whatever this subject is. Um, and in this case, it's the evocation of a god, which in itself is a very curious term, because when we think of evocation, we don't usually think of gods. We usually think of lesser tiers of beings, um, you know, such as demons, spirits, uh, things like that. So to even think about this kind of a, a linguistic construction is itself very unusual. Yeah. Um, and can you, for our audience, maybe contrast evocate and invocate? You do cover this in your book, but it's something maybe we should quickly get out of the way. Right. So typically when, when you use these kinds of words nowadays, when you see contemporary esoteric discourses using the words invocation and evocation, invocation is typically seen as something that is done to a being that occupies kind of a higher metaphysical or ontological position than the magician who's performing the invocation. So you would invocate a god or an angel or something that is higher than you, whereas an evocation is something that is done to a being over which you have power. And when you start to look at these, the relationship between these two terms within the context of theurgy in late antiquity and the resulting kinds of magical practices that developed out of that in the 19th century and continue on today, you end up with a very strict dichotomy where the relationship between invocation and evocation um, is such that the magician is seen to invocate a deity so that power can be kind of secondhand granted to them so that the evocation of a deity who exists within the subordinate hierarchy of that god can be evocated. So invocation for the purpose of evocation. Where that gets turned on its head with Theagogia is that there is no 
intermediacy involved. You strictly have evocation of a god by the magician, which is unusual in the terms you know that there is no intermediacy, but also in that you have a subject which is usually um, you know more properly invocated being evocated. So it's a it's a very curious term around which kind of a very curious practice um, develops. Yeah, and it's it's pretty muddy, as you point out in your book. Um, they kind of fluctuate back and forth. Sometimes you're evocating, sometimes you're invocating, and sometimes you're doing one in order to accomplish the other. Yeah, it's a very the the practice that you we find within the Greek papyri and within some of the the demotic and the bilingual texts is not one where there are very clear cut um, religious or kind of philosophical schemas in place. So when you look at you know the way theorists um, like Iamblichus or like Proclus would describe these kinds of terminologies, it's kind of almost an ivory tower perspective where you have you know someone sitting down and saying, hey, I think that this is the ordered structure of the universe as I see it. So these kinds of practices only make sense within this pre-ordered image. But when you go down and look at the situation on the ground with the papyri, that were being written by you know those operators who were were doing this and you know writing these spells, it's a very different picture. And everything you know, as you say, it's very muddy. Um, you don't find clear distinctions in many cases. You find lots of blurry corners um, where concepts that you know from the position of a philosopher may be clearly defined, clearly delineated, are not so. Um, you the boundaries are more fluid when you look at the the writings of the magicians themselves. So it's it's an interesting contrast there between the two kinds of sources that we look at when examining these kinds of things. Yeah, and I think it's it's hard for a lot of people who like things uh black and white laid out in a very linear fashion to kind of wrap their heads around this kind of stuff. I mean it is it's confusing. Definitely. Um and especially when you you start to think about, you know, the the terms that are, when you look at this from a linguistic perspective, especially the the terms that are used within the magical papyri are not necessarily given the same kind of meaning within those texts that they would be in the lexicons, um, you know, that scholars of the time would have written out, or that other, you know, more academically minded philosophers and theologians are using. So you can find examples, you know, all abound throughout antiquity, um, where, you know, you have words like, um, you know, magia or goatea, you know, terms for sorcery being defined, you know, by Plato or being defined by any of the early church fathers, you know, as meaning one thing. But it becomes clear when you start to look at the the context and the usage of these terms within some kind of a source like the magical papyri, the meaning to the magicians was often very different than the meanings imparted on these words by uh, non-practitioners that were writing about them. I so, think, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I think the word daemon is a, a great example too. You point this out. I mean, there's there seems to be a blurry line uh, historically between spirits of the dead and daemons, as well as uh, the word daemon and gods themselves, uh, which... Yeah, this is it's it's definitely true, and that is kind of endemic of the 
the blurry lines that you find um, within the magical texts, especially. Um, and I think that uh, so often, you know, these kinds of words and concepts, you know, may be intentionally used um, by the magicians because of the the blurriness and the liminality uh, surrounding these. And the demon is a, a particularly, you know, good example of this because it, it kind of straddles every line imaginable you know on the one hand you do have that distinction where there's confusion is a is a demon a god or is it some kind of you know lower order servitor of the gods and then on the other hand you have the same kind of distinction like is it a soul of the dead or is it something else that emanates strictly from the gods and doesn't have anything to do with the dead um and within the magical papyri all of these meanings come into play in, you know, one sense or another, in one spell or another. There, there's a very fluid relationship between all of these meanings. Um, and in, in one of the spells, um, we see this really evidenced when they talk about the the necro demon, um, which I, I think would be a great name for a metal band if anybody's going to do that. <laughs> totally. Um, but it's or a good gore B movie. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> but it just really, you know, kind of. Let's, it allows that liminal nature um, to really sink in because you have so many different um, you know, aspects that are coming into play that kind of coalesce around this figure of the, the demon who is at once associated with the, the gods below and on the other hand is also distinctly associated with the souls of the dead kind of coalescing around this one uh, figure that's being evocated um, in that, that kind of psychagogic spell. And do you think this is maybe where people like Iamblichus and Zosimos had trouble uh, with, with the sorcerers in that the terminology was so uh, all over the board and to throw, throw into the mix, there were a lot of hucksters and charlatans as well. Just like today. Yeah, I mean, with, with Yamblichus, I think it's very interesting for him because as opposed to many of the other Platonists, you know, when you read De Mysterious, you see that he is himself a practitioner of theurgy. And, you know, his, his book provides us with one of the, the best kind of hands-on guides of how to do theurgy. It's really one of the, the shiny examples in all of late antiquity for that. So to see him railing so strongly against theagogy and against thaumaturgy um, and against all these other practices, it's it's very interesting to look at his arguments. And when you kind of examine where his problem comes from, it's it's not so much a practical problem as it is a theoretical problem in that he's not necessarily saying this is wrong because it doesn't work, or this is wrong because you're a faker. Um, you know, I'm sure there were, and I'm sure he would rail against the fakers as well. But with theagogy, it's more on the line of this is an impious practice. Um, and this goes back to the, the problems that Plato even had um, with practitioners of magic, where the, the biggest issue is that it's an impious way of relating to the gods. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, when you look at Iamblichus's, you know, his clear-cut method um, in the, the latter part of De Mysteris for evocating demons, you know, he is the one that really lays out in crystal clear order 
you know, this, this kind of structure of the, the evocation, where if you want to evocate a demon, you must first invocate the deity that presides over this demon. And the act of invocation is, in Yamblichian terms, always a very pious act of theurgic devotion. It's never something where the operator or the magician coerces the deity or exerts any power over them. The invocation is done not by you doing anything to the deity, but by you changing yourself into a vessel which is suitable for you know inhabitation by the deity or its powers or something like that. So the idea from you know this Yamblichian perspective where invocation is this you know eminently pious and holy act that you would have this practice of theagogy where the gods themselves are being treated in the exact same manner as you know the demons that are you know coercively evocated by a sorcerer it's it's just like a, a huge monkey wrench thrown into the whole um, the whole mechanics of his system and it, it doesn't seem like it should work and even if it did work man like you're really wrong for even trying to do this because it's a very impious way of even approaching the gods yeah it's an interesting uh conundrum i mean it's something that i I struggle with i I believe janice as well i mean if if you are not if you don't have a level of purity if you're not receptive if your vessel is not uh if you're not a proper vessel can you be assured that you are even communicating with with the gods um can anyone off the street just walk up pick up a book and say some uh woches magicae and get the same results you know it's a it's a it's definitely an interesting question well and if you're if you uh you know take the yamblichian hierarchy seriously even if one is you know successfully invocating a deity at what level of the hierarchy is this invocation occurring because you know, when you look at the the epiphanies between the noetic gods, the psychic gods, and then on down to the hylic archons, um, things get really muddy really fast. Um, and maybe a hylic archon isn't what you think you should be shooting for, but that might be what you get, um, depending on the, the structure of how how the invocation is performed. Right. Well, and there's the issue of ontology. I mean, I think part of what Iamblichus is talking about relates back to the the structure of the universe or the structure of the cosmos at least and the nature of authority being primarily resident in the anterior and primal principle that produces the later productions the the later uh beings on the chain as it were definitely um and i think that's where you know his his problem with theagogy ultimately stems from this you know this metaphysics and the ontology that informs the metaphysics you know you can't have things that are contingent commanding those things on which they depend ontologically it just doesn't make any sense to him um so i I get the sense you know in reading his his arguments against theagogy that it just kind of offends him intellectually that you know it would even be theorized that such a thing is possible Absolutely. And I also, I think that um, Iamblichus has this Gnostic dimension to him. Uh, it seems to me when I when I read De Mysterious and reread and reread over the years, because it needs that, um, it definitely seems to me that 
on one hand, you have a brilliant theorist, clearly trained in a rigorous way uh, as a philosopher and theosopher. But on the other hand, you, as you mentioned, Chris, you have a practical, uh, you have a practitioner here, somebody who's doing this work. And I think the piety that we see in Iamblichus originates in direct experiences, which were the result of his practices. And I think that his frustration with people um, misunderstanding comes from his that that experience of the of the deity and that understanding that the daimons, uh, even the daimons that are higher on the chain, or angels, depending on you know what you're working with, um, they may hold they may contain and uh, reveal the characteristics and tokens of the deity, but they shouldn't be mistaken for the actual sort of um, hinad. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it, there are very interesting ways with, with which Yamblichus kind of presents the, the descent of the divine into the natural and the material world. I mean, Greg Shaw has been really kind of groundbreaking in, you know, presenting his perspective on Yamblichus that, you know, in, in distinction to Porphyry and, you know, the Gnostics and a lot of these other, you know, middle Platonic um, strains of thought that were happening at the time where you do have strong dualism, you don't have that same dualism in Yamblichian philosophy and in his theurgy. You do, you have a very strong um, sense that the divine descends fully into the material world and that the material world itself is, you know, wholly imbued with that emanative divinity. But at the same time, I do get the sense that there is a degree of ambivalence about the descent. Um, because when, when the Hylic Archons are discussed throughout the course of De Mysteris, they're not very um, they're not presented as the kinds of deities that one ought to be working with. Um, you know, you're always kind of given the sense that you should be working with, you know, deities on the the noetic scale or the henetic scale or somewhere higher up on the on the chain of emanation, um, and that you know the the psychic and hylic archons should really best be avoided because there are dangers with those epiphanies, um, and I think that is a big distinction between um, Yamblichian theurgy and the the kinds of invocatory work that you see within the magical papyri themselves where you know deities that were yamblichus or proclus to analyze them probably would be classified uh lower on the scale as you know hylic deities or psychic deities these are specifically invoked um or even evocated within the context of the papyri um you know the the subterranean the infernal um, the gods of Earth; these are, you know, constant, constant features um, in the papyri themselves, and you really can't have any kind of a discussion about the the theology of the magical papyri without talking about, um, you know, these infernal gods and mm-hmm. you know the whole attendant theology that comes with them. Right. This makes me think. I, I believe Iamblichus warns against false images that you may succumb to by practicing certain uh, sorcerous acts, which reminded me of, for one, contemporarily, um, spiritism and spiritualism, where, you know, you hear 
Beatista's voodoo practitioner's warning that you may not be getting the the thing that you are calling upon. You may think you're getting a saint, but it may be something else. And you you point this out in your book, PGM 4, 930. There's a warning during kind of a, a theurgic uh, working that, that says that at times when you intone the God uh, evocating spell, darkness can be generated. So that kind of for me ties in that that uh, there's a possibility when you do some of these quote unquote lower forms of uh, invocation evocation that you may be interacting with spirits that you not necessarily the ones that you think you're bringing forth if that makes sense yeah and I think if you were if you were looking at this from a, a strictly you know Yamblikian perspective where you know invocation is not something where you simply call out a name and hope that thing that you're calling is the one that answers, but where you're specifically preparing a vessel, um, you know, which can be inhabited um, by the deity or by, you know, whatever um, attendant, you know, angel or demon of the the deity. Um, it's the preparation of the vessel um, and problems with doing that, that I think would, would be the root of that kind of a, a mistaken invocation or a mistaken evocation. And if you're if you're thinking about this from again Yamblichian terms, that would be where a lot of the the knowledge base um, would perhaps be lacking with some of these you know street magicians or, or you know those kinds of individuals where that strong um, you know kind of network of correspondences that were used to you know construct statues or to construct um, you know material vehicles um, which could be used in these kinds of invocative works would not be properly done uh, by someone that was not thoroughly educated in those strong um, systems and networks of correspondences. It's fascinating. I mean, Zosimos, a contemporary of Iamblichus, says some very similar things, uh, I think specifically around the statue making. So that's interesting. Coming from an Egyptian priest, Iamblichus pretending, well, not pretending, but <laughs> playing <laughs> playing an Egyptian priest at one point. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I get the sense that this was, you know, in all the sources that we read from that time period, um, these were, were pretty common principles. Um, and they're principles that, you know, persist all the way through the the medieval period and the Renaissance. Um, you know, every time that, that Platonism was really rediscovered, you see the same kinds of things reasserting themselves with you know, Ficino, Campanella. And it's it, it's the same song and dance over and over again, where, you know, for invocation to be successful, um, if it's being done according to this method, then the correspondences must be known and the vessel must be prepared according to, you know, whatever um, physical or, you know, psychic paraphernalia um, best associate with the, the subject of the invocation. Right. I think we could make this whole podcast about late Platonism. So, <laughs> but, and that would be fine with us, but let's, let's move back towards the magical papyri. Let's talk about some of the terminology for the magicians that you cover in your book. Um, Cause some of them are, are more positive than others. Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to use the term goes um, when I refer to the magician throughout the work. Um, because there's a strong tendency to make the goes um, into this antagonistic fig- figure, 
um, that is kind of diametrically opposed to the theurgist. Um, but that's something that we really only see in books that are written either from a strictly theurgic perspective or from a, a church perspective, um, you know, where these terms are used in a, a purely antagonistic way. Um, and it's not something that we see in the magical papyri. You know, when we do see the term goes or goatea used, it's in a more neutral sense. So using it was kind of a, you know, a, an act of rehabilitation here, just to, to portray the goes as, you know, not something that is, you know, necessarily separate from any of these other terms for magician, but as kind of a more general term for for sorcerer or magician, that applies to you know most of these spells that we examine um, within the papyri. You know, be they binding curses, spells of an erotic nature, necromantic spells, or things like that. It's it's all the same figure that is broadly associated with this. Okay. Having said that, um, looking at uh, the De Mordo Sacro, which is uh, fourth century BC, um, they had some issues with sorcerers and, and goas as well though, right? Weren't they also called beggars, jugglers? What's the context of that work? Yeah. So, I mean, and this is, again, you know, when you look at, at Gorgias and some of the, you know, those texts around that time, and it's the same in Plato as well. Um, you know, the word goas and, you know, the practice of goatea was used as a pejorative term. Um, by non-practitioners. Um, so, you know, it's it's very common in these late antique and really ancient um, texts to strictly use that in a, in a negative sense. Um, but again, it's not, Magea, um, you know, magic was used the same way and I, also as a, a pejorative in many of the same texts. And you see an equivalency a lot of the time where, you know, they're kind of used just interchangeably, you know, one in favor of the other, um, depending on what the mood of the author was, mm-hmm. but the the same thing is not observed in the magical texts themselves. Um, it, you know, you don't see the magicians, um, you know, denigrating themselves with their own terminology. But you see them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they they use the the, the terminology as it applies to them. Sure. Um, but what you don't see oftentimes are broad general terms for magic and magician used within the papyri. Um, typically, these are the kinds of terms that are used by outsiders talking about the papyri or, the, or those kinds of practices, but do not necessarily appear within the texts themselves. Within the magical papyri, you're almost always going to have very specific technical terms for an operation. Um, which is the, the same case within most of the, the theurgic texts as well. Cool. Thank you for uh, clarifying that. So looking at the spells themselves, it's fascinating how you break it down in your, in your book, the progression and the lineage of the different uh, types of kind of mechanics behind how these things work. Let, let's get into that if you don't mind. Maybe uh, we'll start with what you start with in the book, the binding and constraining and, and go from there. Yeah, so a big part of the what I tried to show with the book was this progression going from the binding curses to erotic spells onto the psychagogic and necromantic spells and kind of culminating with the practice of theagogy itself. And with each section, what I try to show is that there is some kind of contextual relationship between 
the specific practices that are discussed in each one of these, you know, kind of detailed um, sections and the broader question of, you know, what is theagaki and how is it interrelated with all of these other magical practices within the context of the papyri in late antiquity. So if we start with the, the issue of the binding curses, this I think is interesting to me because it seems almost to be the farthest from the practice of theagogy. You know, these binding curses are typically going to be things where, um, you know, a curse is being leveled for purely malicious purses, purposes, um, you know, by a magician against some kind of a rival. Um, and the idea that this could have something to do with theagogy seems unusual at first. But the more that we we look into the mechanics of the, you know, the catadesmoi, the, these binding curses that you see so prevalently used in late antiquity, the more that we see that the the way in which they operated um, through demonic intermediaries um, relates kind of strongly to some of the examples that we see of theagogy. Um, and it's kind of through this vector of, you know, binding curses being operationally um you know, performed through these demonic intermediaries, through intermediaries of, you know, the souls of the dead, that we see a pretty strong overlap between the practice of, of theagogy. It's fascinating. And I really love how you, you lay it out. It's, it's eye-opening. And, and this kind of work is very important, uh, in my opinion. So moving on from the binding, I want to get into the leading. Like there's a, there's a, type of spell which is more about leading um, but there there's an intermingling for sure but before we get into the leading can you maybe talk about the bridal theft issue which i think is uh, a huge part of this whole thing yeah so i i was actually unaware of this before i started researching the book um, and I, I thought that the the issue of bridal theft and some of the you know the historical traditions there and the relation with some of the erotic spells was pretty interesting so, you know, one of the things that you see when you look at uh, Greek and Roman history is this idea that, you know, an unmarried girl, you know, would be abducted as kind of a, you know, a pseudo abduction um, in a ritualized format by the suitor or by the suitor's family or some of the men there prior to the wedding itself. And one of the things that we see evidenced in the papyri is a strong connection between these historical traditions of bridal theft. And some of the spells themselves, um, where the violence that is, you know, kind of enacted by these erotic spells against the, you know, I, I guess you can only say, you know, the intended victim of, um, you know, what is an erotic enchantment makes a little more sense when you look at this historical tradition of bridal theft. Because to a modern person, it seems kind of weird that, you know, if you're trying to seduce a woman, why would you want to visit pain and torment on her? Um, which is pretty commonly done in these, you know, strange erotic spells where, you know, the magician is calling on, you know, these demons or calling on the spirits of the dead or the gods to inflict great pain and torment on, you know, the, the object of his lust so that she will, you know, be brought to him or come to him. And what appears to be the case is that this is, you know, at least in some ways, you know, historically associated with these traditions of bridal theft, where, you know, there is this violent component that necessarily goes into play, um, you know, in the, the bringing together uh, of the two sexes. Yeah, I mean, it's super interesting. And you can see this in 
a whole host of, of spells in the PGM. Uh, you, I think you point out quite a few. The Sword of Dardanos would be one that right, people exactly. might be familiar with. I think it's important not to superimpose the um, morality and values of the of the current time, well, of uh, you know any contingent of, of of this age onto antiquity. It's just going to muddy the waters and uh, interfere with understanding it contextually. I would one hundred percent agree with that. I mean, there is nothing constant um, in terms of morality and trying to you know, police things in antiquity with, with, you know, whatever flavor of morality reigns the day is just bound to cause misunderstandings. Yeah. And so this may be a little bit shocking to people who subscribe, maybe a little bit more to the politically correct (laughs) paradigms. Um, This, this might not be the thing for them necessarily. Um, And it's just fascinating that this um, violent compulsion in the erotic sense, then moves on eventually to towards the gods. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's really all bound up with this this idea of a goge that you know the magical pr- and we can kind of translate a goge generally as evocation. Um, so this idea that you know evocation is this almost violent coercive act of you know the the operator the magician pulling something towards him most often against its will you know with the with the the practice of the the erotic enchantments it's always against the will of his intended victim in which i think we can we can definitely call them nowadays um and the same is true when you move towards necromancy you know the souls of the dead do not want to come to the magician he has to you know bind them um, with curses or drive them with threats of punishment. Um, and it's the same, you know, that is true every time you look at this. So when you start to look at the way these practices link up, you know, with, you know, a goge kind of being generalized in the erotic sense, moving towards psychagogia, where the, the souls of the dead are evocated towards the practice of theagogia, um, you see a, a broad continuum where this idea of, you know, forced, coerced, compulsive movement is being initiated by the magician, by whatever the subject of his evocation is towards himself, typically by means of, you know, either actualized violence, threats of violence, um, or something of that nature, which is very different than any kind of pious invocation that you would see, you know, being the norm in other kinds of texts, specifically the, the theurgic variants. And what do you, what do you see as from your study and your perspective? What gives the magician this authority to compel something like a god um, to do its will with threats? It's it's really interesting because you you see it evidenced in several different ways. You know, sometimes you do see the same kind of kind of stacked layering of authority. Um, you know, like if we look at the um, you know the text that. The, the primary um, you know exegesis in the last section is concerned PGM four um, you know nine thirty you know the subject of the evocation there is Harpocrates so Horus the child um, and you know at one point you see the evocation um, being accomplished by means of a kind of prior invocation where another deity is invoked to lend the magician the authority to evocate 
the god Harpocrates. But at no point in the spell is it denied that Harpocrates is a god. Yet by the time he's, you know, invocated to, to or evocated to visible appearance, um, you know, the magician is standing on his big toe to to keep him there, um, which is probably the most impious thing I could imagine, you know, <laughs> being written about a god. Like you're going to stand on his toe to keep him from getting away. It's pretty wild. Um, so it, it, it's interesting that in some ways you do see this kind of, you know, Yamblichian perspective where you invocate in order to evocate almost turned on its head where, you know, you're invocating one God to evocate another God, um, which might make sense, you know, in whatever, you know, theology that particular magician ascribed to. Um, but in the sense of co- some kind of a henatic theology where all the henads are essentially co-equal with each other ontologically, that idea makes no sense at all. Um, so that kind of gets us back, you know, to this idea that from a theurgist perspective, theagogia doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, the idea that you could compel a god by the intercession of another god is nonsensical. Um, and if we start talking about some of the, you know, the theagogic spells where, you know, the gods themselves are compelled by threats, um, you know, that of course makes no sense from the theurgic perspective. Um, and it it kind of gets us back into this thinking about theagogy in that broader context of just general evocation, where it doesn't really matter to the magician what the subject of the evocation is, because the method is constant and the method works. So the magician may not have had any kind of a theoretical framework, but what they had was a tried and true method that from their perspective you know was functional so it didn't really matter how it was explained theoretically it was just a fact that it worked so they would apply the same method you know if you're binding a foe if you're you know coercing a woman to you if you're coercing the souls of the dead or if you need to coerce a god it's all the same you know family of coactive magic that operates with the same kind of basic formulaic mode of practice. I wonder, are you, are you able to pin down when this started? Cause it's interesting if you read Homer, uh, the Odyssey specifically, I'm thinking, um, but the same in the Iliad, if, I mean, they are never uh, demanding anything from the gods. They are doing quite the opposite. And if no matter how much they, you know, try to, uh, be be kind and and pious. The gods are still pretty ruthless and petty at times. I mean, to be to be fair, Odysseus and and, and all of those are pretty ruthless themselves, killing, murdering, stealing. So maybe it's justified. But when does this coercion begin in your eyes? Well, so in terms of strict theagogy, so coercion as it applies to the gods, the first time that we see it is in PGM four. So, you know, whatever kind of a broad date we can associate that, most likely, you know, second or somewhere between second and fourth century AD um, is kind of the time that we first see this practice and this term evidenced in the Greek corpus. Um, but the the preceding practices with which it is connected, you know, the the binding curses, the other forms of evocation, 
these have much more long-standing roots within um, the Greek texts themselves, as well as you know other um, sources for you know magical texts and uh, objects that we find in the Greek corpus. But what may come into play here is you know that particular mode of syncretism that we find um, within Greek Egypt, because we do have this you know Egyptian practice where it was more commonly evidenced in the older Egyptian texts for the gods themselves to be compelled either by each other or by a magician at times, if certain words of power were known, it could be uttered. Um, so, you know, what, what I would theorize is that, you know, it's kind of a, a both and situation in terms of the emergence of this practice of theagogy within the, the Greek, um, you know, mind here, you have, on the one hand, all of these practices that you know are involved with coactive evocation that makes sense for the subjects with which they were initially designed to function, other humans, demons, the souls of the dead. And then on the other hand, you have these older Egyptian practices um, that you know occasionally do involve the coaction or the, the compulsion of a god. You put these together in the same cauldron where you know you have magicians kind of trading spells back and forth, writing out uh, you know bilingual spells so that one camp can you know do the spells of the other. It almost seems like you were bound to get this kind of confluence where the two traditions intermix, and the result is this you know bizarre practice of you know divine evocation. One thing I want to mention is that. It's, I think it's necessary and important to understand that what we're describing here is a, a, a technique, a, a methodology. It's, a, it's, it's uh, you know, a means of employing a, a ritualized um, theurgic or magical technology. And so when you see the same pattern repeated, regardless of whether it's to evocate a god or a spirit or an underworld spirit, that isn't, at least according to my understanding, that isn't necessarily an indication, for instance, that the gods are equivalent to spirits of the underworld or spirits of the dead. It's just that there is a there is a very similar methodology being used to um, interact with and communicate with and even control um, these beings. And I think that there, there's a train of thought. It's more of a modern train of thought than something you find in antiquity that the um, underworld spirits or underworld gods are equivalent to the, the, the celestial and heavenly gods. And uh, examples such as this methodology are cited as evidence of this, and I think that, that those are that that's a that's a, a faulty line of reasoning, if at least according to my point of view. I don't I don't know what your opinion on that is, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I think that you know, for all the the fluidity that we see um, in in the papyri, gods are still gods. You know, there there is a difference, despite you know fluid boundaries between a god that is called upon and a spirit or a soul or a demon. And, you know, there, there are some cases in which it may be unclear, which is which, and there are definite, you know, 
practical similarities in which you know evocations can be performed on one group, which may also be performed on another. But I would agree that it it doesn't necessarily tell us anything about the theoretical understanding of magicians that these things would have been equated as all you know existing in one kind of category that sits at the same ontological level. Um, I don't think that that is borne out by the the texts at all. And I was just curious, Chris, um, personally, I, I may be coming from a more uh, too much of an E.M. Blickian uh, kind of perspective when I think of some of these things, but specifically when you're stepping on the god's toe, uh, for me, I the way I work it out is that it is a daimon of the god. You know, it's the equivalent of the god in, in the realm in which you are able to perceive the god. Um, I don't know. How do you see that? Man... I don't know. (laughs) I mean, as, yeah, like as, as a, you know, personally, I am more on the Yamblichian side than probably anything else. Um, So, you know, one of the reasons that this subject appealed to me so much, you know, initially was that it did seem just strictly illogical. Um, So kind of trying to understand where these magicians were coming from when they wrote about these things was an interesting kind of intellectual effort um, because it does just seem so bizarre. And I, I don't really get the sense, you know, in, especially in, you know, PGM four, nine 30, where Horace is being evocated. I don't see anything that tells me that, you know, this is conceived of Horus as being a, a demon there. It seems very much that Horus is conceived of by the author of the spell as a god, and that this spell is specifically designed to, you know, coercively evocate this god um, to visible appearance. I mean, you have a, a section in the spell that's called, you know, Katochas Totheo, um, that which restrains a god. It's it's not that which restrains a demon. It's very specifically outlined um, so that, you know, this whoever is performing this spell is going to evocate and then restrain the, the god mm-hmm. being evocated. It's, it's very strange. Um, and, you know, if you're coming at it from an Iamblichian or any kind of, you know, platonic perspective, it, I don't think it's going to make sense. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, it brings me back to what we spoke about at the beginning, where there is blurry lines even between daimons and gods. So is it an issue of language, too? I mean, do you think that's possible? Well, I mean, I, you know, despite whatever my, you know, personal philosophical or theurgic or, you know, theoretical perspectives might mm-hmm. be, I just try to examine the texts in their original context and, you know, thinking about this in terms of what the original author might have, might have meant. Sure. Um, and I, I don't know that we can really extract a complete theology from this particular spell because it's not that there's not as much there as we would need to do that. So trying to think about what the theological model would have been, um, you know, in this author's mind, it's it's hard for us to say. But I, I am more inclined to think that this would have been conceived of more in the Egyptian sense, where mm-hmm. these are gods, and you know, by means of this formula, the magician is able to compel Horus to appear, to remain, and you know, do whatever. The magician is requiring of him. Um, it seems to follow that matrix more than anything else. 
Cool. Thank you. Um, sorry to put you on the spot with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so would you say, so I like how your book is, is, is put together. I like the binding, the leading, the, the necromantic, and then the evocating. Would you say that those elements in one way or another are found pretty much in all of the, the PGM? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the more broadly familiar you are with the, the text of the PGM, the PDM, and um, you know, if you ever get a chance to, to get a hold of the supplementa, um, you find the same things everywhere. You find this you know, mixed bag of all kinds of different spells. You, know, you might find you know, a binding curse right next to a spell to relieve a headache or you know, a spell to receive a theurgic vision right next to something that's designed to you know compel a lover into your arms it's it's always very mixed and you know even when you find things that are in the same the same hand on the same um, you know actual piece of papyrus there's not necessarily any thematic relation between texts that we think may have been penned by the same scribe um, which again you know makes makes the makes you think that there was you know a broad continuum among these practitioners um, where this this kind of common thread of evocation is found throughout um, the the vast majority of these these texts mm-hmm. yeah and I was looking I was just looking through the PGM to see where I can apply this people may be familiar with the very popular stele of Jehu. it's interesting that one, the way that's laid out, um, it seems to be uh, evocation, evocation, and then finally invocation. And then there's a leading, but you're leading spirits then away uh, for like an exorcism. So right. it's kind of an, a different twist, but still the same elements are, are there. Yeah. I mean, if you can get a hold of, you know, a, a digital copy of the, you know, the actual Greek, if you just, or if you can, you know, get access to mm-hmm. like the thesaurus linguae graecae um, to do some kinds of searches. If you look for any of these key terms, you find them just all over the papyri, you know, anything that involves a goge or, um, you know, any of those, those key kind of compulsory um, evocative terms are just, you know, manifest throughout the, the corpus. That's awesome. That's fascinating. I think that your point about some of the, I guess you could almost say gritty approach of the works in the PGM and uh, I think to a lesser degree, maybe the PDM, I think it's significant because it does present present a variant from the sort of um, devo- devotional attitude of any Amblichian uh, theurgist. And it certainly is somewhat at variance with Proclus's uh, attitude toward these things as well. However, I my argument rem- has continued to be that even these ritualized acts are in in a in a sense a form of piety because they are a means of employing you know certain a certain set technology to interact with the gods. And I don't think that the that we should. I think that when we begin to impose a sort of judgment upon them, we're missing the point. And I think that there is considerable evidence for Egyptian antecedent practices. Uh, if you look at some of the, you know, the Egyptian spells from things like the coffin texts and such, you do see this, you do see this compulsory approach hand in hand sometimes 
with a uh, pious, pious and devotional approach, sometimes within the same series of spells. And I, I think that the, that's a, that's an interesting indicator. And I think it's kind of a foreign foreign concept to people these days, partially because of the culture we've grown within for a couple thousand years now um, that separates magic and religion. And I think in order to really get inside of the heads of the people that were, were using and employing these spells and works, we have to sort of get outside of that dichotomy of, of magic versus religion and the sort of separation it creates. I think people nowadays, they'll, they'll look at the papyri, for instance, and they might say, oh, well, look at all this compulsory material. This clearly is quote unquote sorcery. This has nothing to do with piety. And I think they're missing the point entirely, um, especially considering that the demographic of many of the people employing these actual, I mean, they, these spells weren't sitting on bookshelves and stores. They were hand copied and uh, shared among magicians of that period who, who were itinerant. They would travel from town to town, set up shop. And if, again, if you go back to the Egyptian culture prior to the Greco-Egyptian culture, this is what Egyptian priests would do. They would they would serve, well, the majority of them. There were some who served all year, but but uh, many of the people who were priests were priests for part of the year. And then for the other portion of their time, they would travel and perform magic in the villages. And I'm sure that the Heratic temple practices were very different from the, the aims that uh, their skills were employed for in a village in the, you know, in villages in the area, you know, because when you're seeing the PGM, I think you're seeing those concerns reflected, you know, people want a lover or they want a lost loved one back, or, you know, they want success if they're a merchant in their business. But if you look at the spell of Astrosuchos, again, we see a practical concern, success in business merged with the sort of mystical and even one could argue pious attitude toward the God that's invoked in the text. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely, there's a little bit of everything there. And I, I think the, the fact that you do have such, you know, can we say base or, um, you know, not to, to denigrate it, but practical and material concerns mixed with, very lofty texts. I mean, the the Mithras liturgy is, you know, one of the the most characteristically theurgic spells, I think, in the entire corpus. Um, and you know, to have these all side by side is, I think, rather indicative of you know that this kind of cast of characters writing the spells that are on the one hand, you know, priestly in their motivations, but are on the other hand, you know, deeply enmeshed in the world itself. Um, so it's not it's not the the same kind of either or situation that we you know perhaps find in the Middle Ages in Europe, um, but it's a lot it's a lot muddier, just like everything else um, you know was back in late antiquity. Nicely said. I mean, do you think this? We're talking more personally now. Um, could you be a totally unpious person and and work these spells successfully? Can you have absolutely no regard for the gods or? concern for the gods but uh, purely material concerns and by the power of the 
magical names, um, the sacred names, would you have the same results as someone who was was pious and was a proper vessel? I don't think that you necessarily find discussions of magic throughout antiquity that would support that being a possibility. You know, you might be able to interpret some of the instructions in the the PGM um, as meaning like, all, you know, all I have to do is just say these words and, you know, put this bandana on my head right. with the phylactery. Um, but I, I do not think that it would have been understood in antiquity as being quite this simple. You know, so often in those kinds of spells, you have some other, you know, and do the usual um, as, <laughs> right. as part of the, the instructions in there. And this is where that kind of, you know, um, you know, this tradition of these hieratic priests would have been important because, you know, they would have understood, okay, well, do the usual means, yeah, I have to go through this whole, you know, invocatory process to, you know, do this kind of ritual of self-transformation first before this conjuration can be successful. Um, and I think, you know, when you, when you look at the way these traditions developed into the early middle ages and throughout um, there, there's always, you know, no matter how, you know, earthy the spells are, there's always some kind of a devotional um, component to them, you know, whether it's evident or not, whether it's manifest or not. Um, I think you're always going to find something there in the background um, that, that links the two. Right. And, and some of them laid out pretty clearly saying that you must remain pure for so many days um, and yeah. whatnot. Well, Chris, um, it's been awesome. You've covered everything I wanted to talk about. Yeah, thank you both for having me on here and you know talking about it. It's really been great. It was such a pleasure to have you. It was exciting to talk about this with you. And your book, I think, is really it's really consistent with the bar that's been set. We were really excited to have uh, Edward Butler and Greg Shaw on the show, and I, I strongly feel that uh, your contribution is is you know right in line with with their work and. Um, you know, we we try, we're trying as one of the themes in this show to focus on on theurgy and uh, you know late antique magic and uh, things like that. And I'm grateful for for what you're bringing into the foreground. And I think it's important also that you didn't dumb the work down, that you kept it scholarly and you kept a focus uh, that was somewhat rigorous. I think that rigorous attitude is important because we have to be able to contextualize this material. We have to be able to understand this work that these people were doing with the proper attitude. And we need the tools to do that. We, it, as soon as we start to interpret this material outside of that, I think we lose a lot. We, we, worldview is so important. And when you attempt to import uh, you know, say a modern materialist, rationalist attitude into it, or you attempt to even take a different magical paradigm and superimpose it upon it, say Solomonic magic. Um, while there may be a line of development that connects the two traditions, I think it's it, it can it can do it a disservice um, because even the attitudes toward the spiritual creatures is, I think Henry Corbin. Uh, I guess Henri Corbin would have would have called them. I think the attitudes are very different due to the influence of uh, exoteric Orthodox Christianity. Um, we're dealing with a period that that there just wasn't. I don't even I don't even really think that that was a thing 
at that point. So we have to be able, I think, to enter into the mind of, I hate using the word pagan, but pre-Christian, <laughs> you know, pre-Christian um, spiritual uh, practitioners, technicians of the sacred, you could say. Because I don't even know that if we use the word, even if we use the word magician in today's parlance, it's fraught with issues because again we're we're going back into that dichotomy between magic and religion and to the egyptian and a greco egyptian mind there wasn't this hard fast distinction between magic and religion yeah and i think when you're examining the you know esoteric currents for lack of a better term of any period um this kind of deep contextual reading um that is on the one hand um you know kind of placing your mind in the same worldview as the subject of your investigation and in in the same you know kind of moment as that doing deep investigation on the words themselves that were used what's the history of wor- these words what is the context of their usage within this particular time period um, you're going to get really different results than if you start to look at things from a strictly modern perspective or even worse if you're kind of trying to superimpose a metaphysical schema of any sort, um, you know, be it, you know, materialistic, be it Kabbalistic, anything onto, um, you know, the, the thoughts and, um, you know, philosophies of a different time period. It always has to be examined in its own context um, for its own sake. Otherwise, you're going to get it wrong every time. Nicely said. And it's just so much more rewarding to dive into those deep waters and, and try to get into their heads and uh, get into the kind of the feeling of, of the time. And for me, it's mentally refreshing too. I, it's, you know, from an early age in our culture where we're sort of inculcated with, with a, with a way of viewing the world and a, this paradigm. Um, and it can be difficult even when we want to extricate ourselves from these influences to do so because of the just near constant saturation that we're presented with um, as a result of that. And for me, on a completely different level, just psychologically, it's been almost like a rejuvenating or healing process to to do that, to, to step into the mind of somebody who lived in Alexandria during this time, for instance, and to to really attempt to immerse myself in their in the way that they viewed the world and experienced the world, both material and immaterial. I think there's a lot to be said for it and there's a lot to be regained and, and, and uh, whether, who knows, you know, there could be an ancestral component to that. If reincarnation is the reality, it could be the revivification of prior modes of consciousness. And if even either of those things are unreal, it's simply a good sort of thought experiment. Yeah, it's definitely a, a unique experience if you've never done it before, trying to just cast aside everything that you think you might know, not just about the subject itself, but about you know the way the world works and try and see something entirely from the perspective of someone at a completely different point you know, in, in time and, and place. Um, because all the underlying assumptions that we have about you know, the, the world get turned on their head as soon as you, you know, step back even a century 
You know, if you're, you're looking at the, the 19th century, things are going to be radically different from the way they are now. Um, and to go so far back as, you know, the second century, um, you really have to be ready for a complete paradigm shift um, in, in terms of everything to really understand um, any of these writings from the perspective of the authors. Absolutely. And if this sounds appealing to our listeners, then Chris's book, Evocating the Gods, is a uh, I think a very important piece of of that puzzle of putting putting that puzzle together, immersing yourself in this world in order to better understand the world at that time, but as as well as the world now. So, Chris, where can people find this book? What else are you up to? Um, where could they get updates on on what you're doing? Because I know you're a busy guy and you've got a lot of things going. Yeah, so I try to keep everything updated on my website, philologia.io. That's P-H-I-L-O-L-O-G-I-A dot I-O. Um, I have a link to the publisher for my book on the website there, Avalonia. Um, you can also find it. I know it's in some bookstores over in the UK. I haven't seen it yet here in the Philly area. Um, other major booksellers that shall remain nameless on the interwebs <laughs> would probably have it as well, but I'm sure the publisher would prefer if you go straight to the source. Um, my website also has all my other, uh, you know, published papers, uh, book chapters and whatnot, uh, that I've put out over the years. Um, as for what I'm working on now, I'm pretty interested in continuing the, the vein of research, um, that my last paper was in. I did a took a break from doing historical work and wrote a strict uh, philosophy paper. Um, it's called Textual Realities, and it's an, Aristo- an Aristotelian realist ontology of textual entities. Um, and after doing all this philological research, I wanted to sit down and do some theoretical work on kind of the, the entities and terms with which the philologist deals. Um, what is a book? What is a literary work? What is text? Um, and in kind of wrestling with these issues, I found um, you know, Aristotle's metaphysics to be the best guide. Um, so I worked out an entire ontological schema um, around the practice of philology on Aristotelian terms. And kind of working in that same vein of looking to kind of you know, revivify ancient philosophy in terms of solving modern problems. Um, I'm currently doing some research with um, ethics from a broadly Aristotelian perspective, but more specifically, actually a Thomist uh, perspective, looking at Thomas Aquinas's uh, Summa Theologica um, to understand um, best ethical practices um, for my occupation, cybersecurity, um, working in this uh, you know, broadly Aristotelian framework. That's most of what I'm up to. Awesome. I love it. Thank you again. We loved the book. We loved uh, talking to you. It's it's awesome material, awesome stuff. You bring a lot to the table, um, and we really appreciate you coming on to educate us as well as our listeners. Thank you for your diligent work on this on this book and your diligent work elsewhere, too. I mean, you've been contributing a long time and you put a lot of work into things. And I've noticed that your approach is always painstaking <laughs> and I know it can't always be easy. I'm sure that um, given your attention to detail 
and how thorough you are. Um, I'm sure you put a lot of work and effort into what you produce, and I really appreciate that approach. So I just wanted wanted to thank you for that. Well, thank you very much. I, I definitely appreciate um, you know the the appreciation of the the diligence and the kind of pedantic uh, you know footnotary that goes into all this. I know I get a lot of that a lot out of that. So it's good to hear that somebody else does as well. And thank you again, both for having me here. It's been, it's been great being on the show. Well, thanks Chris. Okay. That was Chris Placence. Christopher Placence is a uh, wonderful guy. He's an excellent scholar, rigorous, intelligent, very intelligent, you know, profound, deep thinker. And I think a lot of that was reflected in our discussion. Our inter- our interview with him is part of an ongoing series uh, which focuses on theurgy, especially um, uh, theurgy in the Neoplatonic tradition, but it's not limited to that. Uh, so to that end, we feel that he uh, very much is in harmony with our prior guests, uh, Greg Shaw, Edward Butler, Angela Voss, just to name a few wonderful people, brilliant people, and people doing really important research, cutting-edge research on this subject. In order to really understand the topic of theurgy, of invocating and evocating the gods, it's important to allow yourself to have an encounter with the seminal work of some of these scholars who have contributed so much to our understanding. Chris is advancing that understanding as well, and we're grateful for it, and we're grateful that his book has been published. I loved talking to him. I think he brought some really important points to the table, and though to some it may seem like splitting hairs when we're talking about evocating versus invocating and things like that, it's actually very important to understand Uh, this technical terminology. This is an art, this is a science, and we have to understand that the practitioners of this art and science were very much focused on the technical details of it because they were practicing something that was in effect a ritual technology. And technology cannot be sloppy. In, in order to effectively interact with the in, interior, immaterial realm and produce effects, whether material or immaterial, there needs to be a very sharp, clear, focused understanding of the means whereby to achieve these ends. And I think that Chris's work is valuable in that. Absolutely. He's meticulous. Uh, he looks at this these works in a very systematic way. It's, I think it's valuable. I mean, like you said, it's art and science. Um, sometimes we need to look at it from more of an artist perspective, and sometimes it's valuable to look at it. Um, of course, it's not science science, but um, from a more technical uh, perspective, because there is a rhyme and a reason of why things are done certain ways. Um, often it's poetic, but often, it, like you said, it's a technology um, there's a reason for it. And his book is just one piece of the puzzle, which will help kind of clarify and illuminate uh, how these um, practitioners, these operators 
were doing what they were doing and why they were doing what they were doing. So it's very, very valuable in that regard. It's a fairly short work. Um, like I said to Chris, I've already read it three times. I've been back and forth with it. Um, the things that he outlines in the book are uh, going to help you understand the the ancient mind or the uh, late antique mind, um, if that's what you're into. If not, it's it's still a pretty interesting book. And um, it is technical, like we've mentioned, so don't let that hold you back. Maybe turn it up a notch and and dive in with uh, a little bit more of an active uh, participation with this work. You're going to need it. Yeah, I mean, the fact is, if you really want to understand the magical papyri, whether the Greek magical papyri, the demotic magical papyri, um, what you encounter in the Coptic Handbook of Ritual Power, or any of the other myriad, texts which form the sort of the constellated universe of this pattern of magical practice, you do need to understand uh, on a deeper level. Yes, you can jump in and do the magic and that's fine, but I think a good, a thorough study of Iamblichus is almost, if not a prerequisite, uh, should be concomitant with your practice. Uh, looking into what people like uh, Greg Shaw and Chris and um, others have written should also be on your agenda. The more you understand the way the ancient magicians and goetes and theurgists saw this, the the better your your results are going to be. Do not be daunted by intellectual study these many of these people were trained philosophers or priests or priestesses uh, that type of training is not a haphazard thing where you can be a a uh, scrappy bloke off the streets uh, who doesn't know anything and is just jumping in and making some tools this isn't a romantic um, novel set in turn of the century uh, times during the industrial revolution this is a historical this is a historical uh, period that actually existed where people were actually doing this kind of magic and many of these people were educated often within a temple context and when they weren't educated within a temple context they were educated within a philosophical school and there was according to Giles Quispel as we've mentioned on prior episodes a hermetic lodge operating in Alexandria at the time of the writing of the uh, PGM and PDM as well. And it is certain that those hermetists would have been very aware of this material and would very likely have employed it. Uh, consider the spell of Harpocrates we discussed in this episode. That is an excellent example of that. Harpocrates was central to this. Um, so Dom, you have anything else to add? It is a muddy area of history, so just like all of history, actually, the more you delve in and different uh, look at it from different angles, like with what Chris is doing, what others are doing, you get a more clear picture. For us, theurgy is always in the background, but there is definitely an element of a folk magic in the PGM. There's definitely higher magic being done, and it's all kind of intertwined, so uh, it's good to get as much perspective as possible. Having said that, I think it is time to move on to our book review segment. What do you got for us today, Janice? 
So I want to touch on a book that with all of the hot, sexy new books coming out on how to be an instant magician in five minutes or less and do, you know, the 72 uh, Shem Diamonds of the PGM Hameferesh Goetia. Um, we're missing uh, some really important books that have been done by people who are maybe a little bit more serious. This is a book called Occult Traditions. It was published by Newman Books in 2012. It's an excellent book. It is a, it's a compilation of essays. Many of them deal with the Greek magical papyri. Uh, many of these people, if not all of them, are practitioners. It has contributions from the ever-wonderful Damon Zacharias Lycurinos, Aaron Cheek, who we've had on the show, David Rankin, Ioannis Marathakis, Christopher Smith, Gwendolyn Toyton, Tess Dawson, Dawson, Sarita Deste, Matthew Levi Stevens, and others, including our Christopher Placence. He he has an essay in this compilation as well, uh, which is very interesting. Christopher's contribution to this is the hierarchical cosmos, occult theology as a direct continuation of Neoplatonism. He also contributed from Conjurer to Philosopher, a comparative analysis of medieval and Renaissance angel magic. His work in this is, as usual, excellent. And as you can see, it is also, um, again, the work of somebody who is deeply immersed in this. I also just want to mention there's several other Excellent essays here. Um, Damon's essays are great. Uh, Conjuring Magical Assistance in the Greek Magical Papyri. The Spell of Panuthis as a Mystery Rite in the Greek Magical Papyri is another great one that Damon put in here. You know, and there's several other just really interesting, interesting essays here. Um, mentioning Solomonic magi- Magic, Ioannis Marathakis wrote A Source of the Key of Solomon, the Magic Treatise or Hygromancy or Epistle to Rehoboam. And uh, as I think many of our listeners may know, the Hygromantia is, um, it has it displays connections to the PGM. There, there seems to be um, evidence of a line of transmission of the magic um, which I think also connected to the Picatrix as well. So there's there's just some really interesting stuff. And in addition to essays discussing essays discussing magical subjects, there are also even a couple of rites in here: the calling and adoration of Ion and the spell of the mystic flame from Daemon, the hymnic adoration and invocation of Thoth by Daemon and the Eucharistic Feast of Agathodaimon by Companion Abraxas. And these are really just nice rites, which drawing on this tradition uh, are faithful to it, while at the same time, um, you know, being modern creations, which are based on these things. So you're getting theory in this book. Uh, you're getting practice in this book. And the nice thing is it's kind of a reflection of our aspiration with this show. Um, This book goes pretty deeply into, you know, theory, theology, philosophy, and practice all together. 
So it doesn't leave out either side. You have P, you, the book is written in a scholarly manner. Each essay has footnotes. Um, I also want to, I, I can't, I can't not mention Aaron Cheek's contribution to Waters animating and annihilating apotheosis by drowning in the Greek magical papyri. That's a huge subject. If you're familiar with the papyri, uh, there's a lot of drowning going on and this all relates back to the drowning of Osiris and in, in the river. Uh, so it, it does go back to Egyptian theology. So the, the concept of ritual drowning uh, as a process of um, divination, divinization, is is addressed here too. It's it's an excellent book. I, I can't recommend it enough. And I feel as though um, it may have fallen by the wayside uh, with the increased popularity of the PGM. And I think that's kind of a uh, a travesty because this is work done before the current fad uh, was in effect. And um, I believe that at Damon Zachar- Zacharias Lacurinos, uh, he's the one who edited and compiled this and though he tends to keep a low profile online, his work is exemplary. He's an intelligent, uh, excellent magician. And uh, so I I have to, I have to give credit where credit's due here. And I have to say, I really love this book and I consider it an indispensable contribution to my library in the area of my library that is devoted to this subject. And the name of the book again, occult traditions. I think it should be, I, I don't know if it's in print anymore. I'm uncertain about that, but if it's not, it should be brought back into print. Thank you for doing that great review. That sounds like an awesome book I need to get my hands on. I think we are through with the episode. Uh, thanks again to Chris Plaisance. And uh, as far as us, you can find us everywhere we normally tell you to find us. So YouTube, you can subscribe to our channel, Facebook, you can like us there. Uh, we're on iTunes and all the other pod places. Uh, give us a review and a rating. That would be very nice of you. We would appreciate it. Yep. Thanks, everybody. You're very much appreciated. Stay cool. Stay strong. Stay safe. Stay safe right now. And, um, you know, try, try and stay engaged with your spiritual or magical practice as much as you're able to, because it will not only bring you stability, but it will also um, strengthen your ability to cope with the many changes that are going on in our world right now. Absolutely. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you next time. 